Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome in to episode 73 of the podcast, and it's a good one, I'll tell you that, it's a good one. Uh, before I say a little bit more about that, thanks to those of you who have been getting in touch after the last episode, our conversation with journalist David Farrier, and as we discussed his reporting on sort of the megachurch madness and his uncovering of some of the, the harm that was being experienced at Arise Church this year. It was such a good convo. And I think one of the things we talked about or that came up in that conversation um, was that, you know, on this podcast, really, we didn't expect to be talking about so much of this for so long in 2022. You know, this podcast has been going for three or four years now. And I had some things in mind to talk about this year uh, as the year began. But really, once David's reporting started coming out, and at the same time, some troubling stories were emerging from some other spaces. And then once all of that started hitting the public domain, then thousands of stories seemed to come flooding out uh, into into this conversation. And so we realized there's so much more to talk about in all of this. And as we heard those stories and as we asked questions and uh, asked what the questions were that were on your mind, uh, just so many things coming up <laughs> that, that needed some work, that needed some time taken to work our way through. And so here we are heading into the last part of this year and still working our way through some of this complex territory and how to understand and perhaps unpick some of the systems of harm and, and what they've done, how to find healing and well-being as we move through and beyond them. And that's that's really where our conversation heads today. So in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Hilary McBride. Hilary is a therapist, a researcher, an author, a speaker. She works, uh, among other things, in the arena of trauma, she has a real understanding as a researcher of how stress and trauma impact the body, as well as then in her work and because of her history, the complex work of spiritual and religious trauma, why it's so potent, and we talk about all of that as well as discuss how we can start to move forward, find some healing, some reintegration, a sense of well-being, and so on. And it's such a great chat. Hillary brings so much expertise and compassion to this conversation, which I so deeply appreciate. Um, and... Although it's focused on spiritual and, and religious trauma, I think there is actually so much in here for understanding how to navigate our own humanness and in many areas of our lives, how to navigate complex social networks and communities of people, families, um, you know, workspaces, you know, where, wherever we might experience pain, stress, and, and so on. So there's, there's so much in this conversation. I'm really grateful to Hillary for the gift of her time. Just before we jump into that conversation, a reminder, of course, that you can get in touch. Uh, email us at feedback at intheshift.com. Or find us on the on the socials uh, and let us know what you think of the conversation or the questions that come up for you, the stories you might want to share, things you want us to keep talking about or to talk about more. And of course, you can support the work of In The Shift via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash in the shift. If you feel that's something you'd like to do, if you're able to do it and you think a few dollars a month in our direction would be a good thing to do, then uh, you're most welcome and that'll help us keep this thing happening in a way that's sustainable. So... This is episode 73 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So today on In The Shift, I'm joined by Dr. Hilary McBride. Hilary is a therapist, researcher, speaker, and writer and her most recent book is titled The Wisdom of Your Body. Hilary, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. I'm so delighted to. Thank you for having me. Well, there is an affinity that I think New Zealanders have for Canadians. 
Oh yes. <laughs> I think I think there's a there's a uh, there's a parallel relationship. We have the Big Brother Australia. You have mm-hmm. the Big Brother Brother America. But Canadians mm-hmm. apologize almost as much as, as Kiwis. So I think that's good. <laughs> I believe you. I don't need to see the research on that. I just have an intuitive <laughs> sense that it's true. Um, by way of introduction, maybe into a, into our conversation, uh, one of the one of the reasons for for wanting to be able to have this conversation um, with you is because in New Zealand and also in Australia this year, we've had I think hundreds, if not thousands, of stories emerging into the public conversation. Uh, a lot of those actually in the media around pain and harm and even trauma that have been caused in religious spaces. Um, in particular this year, those stories have come out of evangelical Pentecostal megachurch type environments, although they're not limited to that. Um, and and one of the things that's been particularly interesting, I suppose, in, in that emergence of that conversation is how so many people felt that this was, was a very personal experience that only they had had, only to find that there were in fact thousands of people around them also experiencing very similar kinds of things. So there's been a kind of solidarity in that process, um, but also an exposure, I guess, of the the systemic um, nature of some of the harm that's being caused in some of these spaces. Um, so it's felt like a lot. And I know that one of your areas of expertise is trauma and uh, and that you have an understanding, I think, of religious trauma as well. So you just seemed like the, the perfect person to have a conversation mm-hmm. with. It's a um, funny thing to be known for. Yes. Ah, Hillary. Mm-hmm. She knows about right. trauma. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> or we joke sometimes that I get a, a kind of glint in my eye when I hear when I hear someone talk about trauma, only because I feel so compelled to understand and mm. I believe in the healing that can happen when we start to name it, but it can be misunderstanding, or I could I can be misunderstood in my enthusiasm around something that is so painful. But I love I I do love to be known for someone who understands trauma in a in a strange way that 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 is. <laughs> um, yeah, before we before we dive into maybe uh, there's so many questions um, I think we could explore and, and mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get to a lot of them. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your own um, religious or spiritual back- background and how mm-hmm. that combined with the way you ended up coming into the kind of work that you do? Mm-hmm. I grew up in a, a house with parents who had, I would say, quite intense involvement in the Baptist church that I grew up in. And they had come from families that were identifying as Christian and also immigrant families who were farmers and had a particularly devout work ethic and commitment to community. And when you grow up in small communities, I think there is a sense of interdependence that you know in a way that we don't really in the city. People need to know that their neighbors are going to look out for them. And when all of those neighbors are also farmers and also go to church, that there is something, and many of them are immigrants, kind of gets baked into your identity, all of these things that are, that coalesce to create a sense of, of care Uh, community, connection with the land and faith. And so in a strange way, I think I had a, both an indoctrination into a faith system that had some degree of um, toxicity to it and and some ideas that were harmful, but also I think probably because of the unique people that my parents are and the way that they thought critically about that and think critically about the world and and understood um, relationship to land and understood themselves what trauma is that I I was protected in some ways from going really far deep 
into some of the the rhetoric, the theology, the practices in certain faith communities that do create so much harm. So to be a bit, just a bit more specific about that, um, both my parents are therapists. And even that from the beginning to say, right, I have parents who are therapists and Christian would be mind-blowing for some people because for so many denominations, the idea of believing that people could help each other heal as opposed to relying solely on prayer or the sacraments or whatnot for healing or something outside of the church, so to speak, it would be quite confounding. So there's that piece. The second piece, I think, is that my parents really understood that faith had so much to do with the outworking of the way that we care for one another and receive care. And so it wasn't so much, um, yes, I did Awana, I did all of these kind of like Bible memorization things, but there was also these ways that I witnessed my parents see who was at the margins of the community and make efforts to dissolve the divide of power between them mm. and saw that in particular as a way that, that we do the love of Christ well. And then um, both my parents do work in the areas of trauma and my dad right. in particular, mm. he, he has a kind of a specialty in his practice of working with adult survivors of sexual abuse and mm. um, has seen and walked through some pretty profound experiences of pain and trauma and healing with people. And so baked into his, his faith was an understanding of the complexity of being human, the phenomenology of pain how development occurs through the lifespan. And so I think I've, you know, people who are familiar with my work will have heard me say this in many places that there was many conversations growing up about human growth and development, human growth and development. Well, that's a normal part of human growth and development. Mm. Well, this is a thing that happens in human growth and development. And just kind of what it means to understand the arc in the lifespan of being human mm. and how, how a central feature of that is change. And so there were many moments in my life where it felt like I was both offered this, um, in some ways, like pseudo rigid theology and also this portrayal in real life and day-to-day discourse about the complexity of being human and how it's okay to change and grow and be different Mm. and how it's okay to differentiate from your parents. In fact, that's a healthy step of adult Mm. human growth and development to think differently than your parents, right? And so- it felt like I was given a a template of faith, but also the permission to think differently and also the permission to disagree and the permission to think about things with a critical eye without that meaning that I was somehow, um, I myself was disobedient or problematic or uh, sinning, so to speak. Mm. And so I think I, I hold inside of me the ability to, to be a person of faith, to understand spirituality and have a deep love affair with science and critical thought of politics and love to think about the rebuke of the church as a way that we grow as a faith community. And so all of those things don't feel like contradictions to me, but I realize that in many, for many people in their homes growing up, that it would be antithetical to be a therapist and go to church. It would be antithetical to be a Christian and and a scientist. It would be hugely problematic to say, actually, we heal each other. And I don't, I don't think there's anything more mystical or magical that needs to happen besides us looking each other in the eye and saying you're worthy of love mm. for the work of God, of love, of the divine to be in in and amongst us. Mm. Yeah, it seems like we are 
we can be so often pushed into binaries where we're, we're forced to choose between these things. And I think yeah. in some ways that's what makes the journey complicated for people because they do look at their experience and see um, personal growth. Uh, they say good time, good friendships. They, they, they talk about good experiences. And yet they're also sitting here with this, these layers of, of pain and trauma and not necessarily being able to know what to do with that contra- that seeming contradiction mm. between those between those things in their story. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I've certainly seen that cause a bit of confusion. Yeah. Yes, you're you're hitting right at the heart of something that I think is so so challenging in the healing of experiences that are traumatic, particularly in the way that happened in a church, because that that has been a a framework, a worldview, a a way of organizing life, like good or bad, black or white, that is so foundational to so Mm. many faith communities that even if a person leaves a faith community, they might still take with them the paradigm that shaped their way of looking at the world, Mm. including good or bad, right? Right or wrong in kind of these, in the binaries, um, and it takes, sometimes we call that first or second order change, right? You could imagine in an example where somebody is is drinking and then they stop drinking, but the problem underneath hasn't resolved itself. So they start shopping compulsively. They're like, oh right. good, I'm not drinking anymore. But actually the thing that's underneath the shopping was the same thing that was underneath the drinking. Mm. And it is so hard to root down into those systems that shaped our worldview from the beginning to see, wow, even if I've left left the church, I still might be orienting to the world in the same way mm. that I did when I was in the church, which is, you know, these are the bad people and these are the good people, mm. or this is how I'm good. And that's, that's anything else is bad. Yeah. So I'd love to begin, I or begin talking about religious trauma itself. Um, you know, this year I've heard countless stories of, of burnout, of abuse of power, of extreme environment of ex- environments of extreme pressure um, even of harassment and bullying within within church communities um, and and one of the things that comes up a lot in people's stories about that is that the response to them often is you need to you know move on don't don't get hurt don't get bitter um, you know we all we all get hurt so um, just sort of pick yourself up and, and carry on and don't let it um, stop you from keeping on being a part of this thing. And again, that that sort of narration of their experience that's done for them is in some way uh, minimizing, or in a lot of ways minimizing, the actual experience they're having, which is they might, they might not even be able to work and walk into a church building without having a panic attack or some kind of, um, you know, elevated response in their body. Um, so what are some helpful ways of thinking about what's going on in religious trauma? that actually help mm. us to take it, I guess, as seriously as it needs to be taken. Right. Well, I think there's a couple of ways of looking at religious or spiritual trauma. And one of them is to say it's any kind of systemic trauma that happens in any other kind of system, a family mm. system, a workplace system. But when it happens in the context of faith, it seems to seep into every every part of a person's identity and way of looking at the world, because Mm. the story is about faith communities and religion, that it is meant to be the center of who you are, that it's meant to be the the orienting place in your life. So when there is an abuse, when there is a trauma, when there is um, systemic oppression, when there is relational or interpersonal violence of any kind, but we can't step away from it 
like at a workplace or, you know, at a certain, I'm trying to think of other dynamics, perhaps even get trying to get away from a family, a family mm. of origin where there was systemic abuse. When, when that, that trauma is not only understood to be endorsed by God mm. and God is then everywhere, it's really hard to get away. Yeah, right. In fact, you might even argue it feels like it's impossible to get away because if mm. if this is the God who is condoning this and this is the God who, you know, will be on the other side of death and you can't even really get, you can't really go to death mm. to get away from the suffering. Hell becomes right now. It becomes mm. here on earth. So there's that way of looking at Spiritual or religious trauma, it's just mm. like trauma, but it happens in a church and because of church or in a religious environment, because of what that means to us, the ramifications of that are quite profound. Mm. But then there's, you know, there's a, a bunch of other ways of thinking about trauma. Um, one of them is to think about trauma as an event or an experience that is caused by a person that's associated with religion and is somehow thought to be a stand-in for the divine. This could be a parent, this mm. could be a pastor, a leader. And think about how when we are young, our parents in a way represent godlike figures to us. So you could argue that when violence or harm or trauma is perpetrated by parents, that this is also a form of spiritual trauma. And then we have kind of the other components of it, which is that we somehow as the person who's experiencing the trauma believe that that the religion somehow is the, or the spirituality is somehow the cause for what happened. Because we could imagine... In some situations, like let's say I was on a sports team and the the boss or the boss, I think they're called coaches. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the appropriate term. You're showing off now with your sports knowledge. I know, I know that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm revealing my areas of <laughs> interest without even knowing it. <laughs> that there is, you know, this coach who acts in an abusive way. Mm. It it would make sense in some way that we would be able to separate that coach and their abusive behavior from all soccer experiences mm -hmm. ever. Or at least we might be able to say that that was a bad seed, right? Or that was a bad apple. But there's something about the way that people are handed authority in religious environments where it seems that that person, whoever has the authority, represents God, represents the church, that it seems to, again, the damage proliferates across these, these boundaries you create. And then lastly, some of the experiences that we have as a response to this experience of trauma, this relationship that was abusive in some way, shape or are connected to, as I'm alluding to, God, religion, spirituality as a whole. So a person, you know, in let's say Vancouver has an experience with a pastor that's abusive and it impacts the ripples, ripples into all of their sense of spirituality, all their sense of religion or, or the church. And then consequently, when there are any reminders of the church, mm. when are there any places a person accesses those feelings or memories or associations, their body responds in a way that says, this is like the thing that hurt me mm. and I need to get away. Mm. And I mean, we can go as much into trauma theory and neurobiology of stress response, if you'd like. But essentially, the, these are the ways that we understand what religious trauma is categorically. Yeah, I'd love to talk, I suppose, a little bit about what's happening in the, in the body. Because um, 
I think one of the things people struggle to figure out is do I even have something to, to I feel like there's stuff right. in there, but I don't know like what to do with that or whether right. that's a problem or am I supposed to just move on or, or, or whatever. You know, I right. I remember when I, I had been part of a, of a system like this many years ago and I'd had a few years doing something very different in a very different type of um, faith community that was much more healthy. Uh, and then I got invited into a similar um, space mm-hmm. to my old space to to talk about some theology, and uh, and I thought, oh, that'll be fine. And I and I went in, and then I, I I sat in the seat, and then all of the things started happening that, in themselves, you know, it, it was a it was like a Pentecostal mega type environment. So the the smoke machine started, and the the okay. you know the band started playing, and the people started clapping, and 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 I just started sweating and like a lump in my throat and nausea, yes. and I'm like, I'm going to have to get up and yes. talk here, and um, oh. and so there's something happening in my body there, right? Yes. That, that I yes, had no exactly. idea was going to happen to me in that moment. Right. So right. so what's what's going on? Sure. Well, <laughs> I'll start by talking about something that I like to think about as memory cookies. Mm-hmm. And memory cookies, like if you're interested in reading more about this, I've got lots more of this in the book that you mentioned off the top. The idea is that when we are having an experience that is stressful and we're kind of beyond our capacity to cope, the way that our brain integrates and stores information is different than let's just say if we were at the grocery store, or we were having dinner with a friend and things felt calm and connected and feel felt peaceful and at ease. Mm-hmm. So when we're in this elevated state of stress, particularly when it's kind of more stress than we can tolerate, our brain is taking all of the sensory information around us together with the things that are happening on a sensory level inside of our bodies and the thoughts that we're having, and it's packaging them all together. Mm. And the reason why I call these trauma cookies or, or memory cookies is you can imagine if you were making cookies and you had all the ingredients on your counter, you have the flour and you have the butter and the eggs, they are discrete from each other at some point, right? They're, they're distinct variables. The eggs are not the flour, but at some point in this unique state of mixing them all together, as simulated here behind by this high stress experience, you can't take some cookie dough and separate out the eggs anymore. Mm. It's kind of woven into, it is, it is integrated into the structure of the flour and the salt and the butter. Those things become formed to, to make something new that you cannot move backwards from. Mm, mm. So we have these packages of memory that get that get stuck inside of our nervous system. And memory is this really powerful thing that I think we don't really understand culturally very well. But memory is not just the things that we articulate, right? We call that declarative memory. If I said to you, go to the store and get, you know, um, window cleaner and paper towel and some soap, that would probably be kind of you know, relatively a cognitive exercise for you. But if I was to ask you to remember that time at that church, the one that you left initially, right, there would probably be, as you alluded to, some body responses. Mm. So there's a body quality to these memory cookies, so to speak. And that's because our brain is storing in a very intentional way, all of the sensations, all of the things inside and outside of us and linking it to the environment linking to this experience that we kind of get a label on, so to speak, that says dangerous, like mm. watch out for this. This is no good. And it lives in our nervous system in a different way than one of these cognitive or kind of declarative memories. And the reason for that is because your body is so good at detecting threat mm. that if anything, even close to what you went through 
happens in the present moment, right there, your body response is there to mobilize you, to put you back in that initial state of stress response to help you get away, defend yourself, um, be on high alert for more danger, to look for Mm. resources for who Mm. could help you. But I think that like, this is, this is not novel information in the field of traumatic stress response. It is novel information in faith communities where one, we've learned to mistrust science and two, where we've learned to mistrust what science says about our bodies. In particular, that our bodies have useful information to tell us Mm. that keeps us safe, right? That is actually Mm. part of our flourishing. And when we haven't been given a healthy relationship with our bodies, it's very normal for people in kind of toxic faith environments to not even know that they have a body, quite literally to be so dissociated from their body that they don't know how to feed themselves. They don't experience pleasure. They don't experience um, pain in their body. There's just kind of like total dissociation. Mm. Or they learn to see their body's responses as the threat, as opposed to the environment that's creating that stress response. So when we've been in a stressful situation and our body starts screaming information at us saying, you're in danger, get away. This is like when we got hurt last time. Whether it's true or not, whether we're just remembering or whether we are getting hurt again, the point is that most of us who didn't learn to trust our bodies have no way of listening to and interpreting that information Mm. because itself becomes the threat, right? There is all sorts of scripture that's been misused about our body being a problem, Mm. right? It being deceitful, our body being untrustworthy and leading us astray. And in high control religious environments where anything that takes you out of that community would be considered to be leading you astray Mm. and your body is trying to take you out of that community. It's pretty easy for us to understand why many of us would feel like our bodies were the problem. Mm. And then we get, you know, all these triggers that come up and that's really what a trigger is. It's what we call a false positive response. It's, it's our body saying it's happening again. It's happening again. It's happening again, even if it's not, or even Mm. if it's kind of like what happened, but it's not an exact replication. And then we don't really know what to do with that. Mm. And we tend to disavow it and judge it, or it feels overwhelming for us. And that in itself is its kind of own trauma. Yeah, that's it's so interesting to think about that um, that relationship with the body, and even in some of the the quite explicit teaching within some spaces, which is that the the body is not to be listened to. You know, it's quite yes, proactively yes. said. You know, the body is mm-hmm. trying to stop you from overcoming or from breaking through, or especially in some mm-hmm. of the the quite high um, energy Pentecostal type environments that, that many of right. the listeners have come from as well. You know that that sense of breakthrough and overcoming um, is is what you discover when you've learned to push down all of those signals that your that your body yeah. tells you, and that's right. that's a problem, right? Big yeah. time, yeah. And then the irony too is, I think, when we've suppressed this kind of bodily communication, and then the door finally opens. Because the pressure of all of those unprocessed experiences, unprocessed Mm. sensations builds up and kind of busts through the door to our consciousness and gets our attention. It often is terrifying. It often is loud and overwhelming and confusing. And if we don't have the right skill set or narrative how to interpret it, it seems to be reinforcing of this narrative that like, Mm. oh, look, our bodies are bad. Even if we're outside of the church, even if no one else is telling us that, it's like we look at these experiences and see them as proof for the badness of our body. And as many of us, I think, would, you know, grew up believing that the church is somehow 
better or separate from culture, Mm. right? This is a distinct community. We've been set apart. There's all of that language that's used. Mm. I think one of the major flaws in that argument is how we've taken cultural narratives and just baked them into our view of of whatever we believe spirituality, like our spirituality is. And so people leave the church and they're like, oh wait, people are just as disembodied out here. Oh wait, people outside of the church have just as many problems with patriarchy and misogyny, right? There's actually not Mm. as much different as we thought. And so Mm. sometimes we leave the church and we we don't find therapists who know how to work with the body Mm. or we don't have community members in our new communities who understand what's happening with our bodies. And that can be kind of confusing too. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you mentioned, I think, the the sense of when things are suppressed for an extended period of time. Um, and again, like many of the stories that we've been talking through um, this year have been from people, some have had very specific incidences that have been traumatic. Sure. But many of them have had these longer term, um, kind of more chronic stressful environments mm-hmm. that have led them to burn out, fatigue, you know, and, and, and quite young people, maybe 21, 22, 23, experiencing severe burnout um, at yeah. that age because of how hard they've sort of pushed themselves. Um, what's going on in the body when in that kind of longer term stress or trauma, if, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that, that might be compared to a more specific acute kind of incident. Right, right. So one of the one of the challenges with the complex ongoing stressors and whether we call them complex trauma, complex stress, mm-hmm. kind of the the cost of caregiving is often compassion fatigue is called that there is no single incident we can point to. Mm. Right? There's nothing that we can look at our story in and go, okay, it was that moment. That was the moment when something happened. Yeah. And I think our stories around healing have us predisposed to think that, okay, maybe we can heal, but we have to figure out what the thing was that happened. Yeah, yeah. And when there was no thing and it was, there was no end to that thing because it was just one thing and then another thing and another thing like that, that stacked on top of another thing that stacked on top of another thing in a whole community that was saying, this is how you're good. This is how you're loved. Mm, mm. That all of those things really shape the development of a mind and create I would say even create personality structures for us about how we learn to be loved and how we learn to be good and some coping mechanisms and responses and bypassing strategies that can can really look like nothing, especially when so many people around us are doing and saying the exact same things and Mm. having the same experiences. There's actually nothing outside of normal, air quotes here, that we can point to. But again, the body doesn't ever lie. And so at some point, down the road, the allostatic load, right? The cumulative effect of all the times that we are misattuned to, all the feelings that we never felt, all the ways that relationship was impaired, our strategies of trying to perform, you know, spirituality perfectly. And then the significant terror of what would happen if we didn't, the cumulative effect of that shows up in our bodies, ironically, right? The bodies that we learn to disavow finally say, I, you know, I'm not giving up on you. I never give up on you. And I'm going to start getting loud enough that you cannot ignore me. Mm. So people experience things like um, autoimmune disorders, chronic and unresolving digestive disorders, things like depression, right? The overlap between depression and burnout is, is quite significant. Mm -hmm. And there's a debate in the clinical community about how much they're actually different. But it's good to note, right, that our system 
after that much stress has no other option but to shut down to try to keep us alive. And that's usually what that chronic fatigue, the the, the anhedonic mm-hmm. parts of depression look like. So in a way, as someone who's experienced a single incident traumas myself, I understand the um, the privilege of that. I can look at an event and go, here's before, here's what happened, and here's what after, here's what was after. And I don't want to in any way say that there's a privilege to trauma itself, but having a before and after really helps us organize the experience to go, Mm. okay, there were other experiences I had in my life. And there is something that can feel, um, I mean, in the philosophical community, you might call it like a hermeneutic injustice that when you don't have a paradigm for understanding what is happening to you and yet it is happening to you in a way that is changing your life and making creating great suffering for you, but no one's helping you understand that mm. um, because it's just so commonly accepted and praised, it's really hard to know where to begin with the healing work. That idea of, of um, I guess, understanding what has happened to us um, strikes me as yeah really important in in our own process of mm-hmm. I guess making sense of our experience and then being able to heal from it. I remember um, oh this was a long time ago now in a previous life <laughs> not a lit- not a literal previous life but um uh, I was I was a I was training in science and mm-hmm. and my first piece of post grad study was looking at psychoneuroimmunology, which 20 years ago was a very new... Oh, kind of, yes, you were ahead of the, ahead of the game. Um, and one of the pieces of evidence I, I remember that was being talked about at that time was that, because um, we were looking at the effect of trauma. Funnily enough, back then, um, mm-hmm. the effect of trauma on the immune system and its ability to respond to, mm-hmm. to disease and so on. And there was some evidence emerging at that stage that the more um, people were able to narrate their experiences with some degree of clarity, the -hmm. better their immune system was doing and the more confused and muddled they were about their experiences, um, the less well it was doing. Now, that is very out of date now. You know, that was a long time ago. But is that consistent with where research has come since then? Yeah, and I might even articulate it... um... I I think that that's true. And now we can actually back that up in more ways, maybe Mm. with different language. But I think the idea that comes to me as I'm listening to you talk about this is how being able to organize a narrative around what happened is usually a signal of having people in our life who can also help us coherently Mm. narrate what happened in a way that helps us organize our experience and know to some degree that it's over, right? Narratives are are social constructs. Narratives are interpersonal processes. And it's really hard to come up with a very clear and coherent personal narrative when we are still actively in trauma or when our body thinks that we're still in trauma. Because, I mean, we can even see things like decreased regional cerebral blood flow to the parts of our brain that actually do or thought organization and um, would say like kind of the executive executive function parts of our brain. We tend to be more in the am I going to live or die parts of our brain, which have Mm. make it very, very hard for us to organize thought and tell a story with a beginning, middle and end. So what we know now, particularly when we look to it, the social response model of trauma, we see that when we have people around us who can go, 
tell me what happened to you. Mm. And here's what happens in me when I hear what happened in you. And wow, that was horrible. And here, did you remember this part? And oh my gosh, when you said that, it made sense of why that other thing in your life would be hard for you. Mm. We have the experience of being witnessed and attuned to, which one has the effect of signaling to our nervous system, which is highly socially oriented. Ah, the trauma is over. I'm being heard. I'm being cared for. I don't have to be in a constant state of vigilance, a trauma. So one, we get to, we get the sense that it's over, which would predispose us to be able to do a narrative, a coherent narrative easier. Mm-hmm. But two, other people support the development of our nar- narration of our experience. And so when I think about the significance of that in light of spiritual trauma, it's very hard to find those experiences within a faith community that hurt us because people mm-hmm. tend to be so committed to defending the thing that they also need to believe as a means of keeping themselves safe, that it's really hard to get enough distance from it in that community to go, oh, yeah, that that hurt me. And here's the story I can tell about it, and it's over. So that makes sense of why so many of the stories I hear start with, I've never told anybody this or I've never had anyone to talk to um, about this story because they experienced that in the church. And if they come out, um, then nobody outside really gets what was either. And it's so that, that place of loneliness that, that occurs there. Right. Right. And yet we know that that loneliness itself is a, is a wound right? The loneliness to feel disconnected from people and to not be able to feel felt to be Mm. accompanied. There's Shelley Rambo wrote a really interesting theology of trauma book. I think it's called Spirit and Trauma in which she kind of reintroduces the concept of a witness, right? When we think about how central the idea of witnessing is in Christian theology, like this is like a fundamental feature of the resurrection story and the notion of evangelicalism and all of the things that perhaps um, had one one aspect to them that we got familiarized to. But the, perhaps a, a redeeming quality of this word would be to say that baked into us is this longing for connection and the longing to be seen and known, not just in the places of joy, but also in the places of pain and to actually witness in the true sense of what that word means is to walk Mm. alongside and to look at the places of pain in each other and say, you are not alone with that anymore. Mm. And we cannot do that if we are committed to ignoring the pain is there. Mm. And we cannot do that if we are committed to a story um, in which the disavowal of the pain is part of how we prove that we're good at our religion, Mm. at our spirituality, right? We need these experiences of being felt and accompanied as a means of knowing that we're not alone and healing. But ironically, as Shelley Rambo, I think, says more skillfully than I could, this would actually be the true working out of what that word meant, not mm. conquer uh, <laughs> civilizations, not um, <laughs> colonize people groups, but walk alongside each other in pain. And this is how you live out what love is doing in the world. So one of the questions I've, I've again heard a lot this year is people then sitting here, and I think what you're just talking about there leads us into this conversation really well, which is, what do I do with all of this? How do mm-hmm. I actually go about healing um, from this? Um, you know, there's a bunch of painful stuff in there. It sits there. I don't know what to do with it. Um, 
what are some ways of, of moving forward and into healing? Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's important to make spaces to be talking about this as we've kind mm. of already acknowledged that there there needs to be um there needs to be connection. There needs to be space for us to reauthor the narr- the narrative that we have. And I think all of that um falls under this ma- major overarching paradigm that I want to present as as the root of what healing is, which is to undo fragmentation, to to weave back together what was disconnected. And so that means looking at the disconnection between mind and body and where that came from, looking at the disconnection between us and other and finding spaces where we can authentically enter into relationship and tell Mm -hmm. the story of what happened. Um, Of course, there's all sorts of things that we that we know in trauma theory, particularly in complex trauma theory about how we heal. And those tend to fall into a few categories. One is getting safe, mm-hmm. which sometimes means getting away from mm. both the trauma and the reminders of the trauma just enough so that our bodies can settle, just enough that our bodies can go, okay, I could start looking at this stuff now. Because it's really hard to look at it if we think it's still happening. It's just kind of right, actively yeah. dominating yeah our orientation towards life. Mm. And then the section, the second piece or the second option here would be some processing of this, right? Finding places where we can grieve, where we can be angry, where we can reassociate to the feelings that we have and where we can reassociate to the anger about how long we are away from those feelings. And then I think the third piece is something that would be kind of this reintegration. So like, how do I... How do I move forward from here on out? And there's a number of ways of looking at what reintegration means. It could be, okay, what do I, what do I think about spirituality now? Like maybe up until that point, we just set the question of religion or God or spirituality on the shelf. And maybe after we go, okay, I, I get to make some choices about spirituality and I don't have to do what any, anyone else says in order to be good or loved in a capital sense. So what do I want to do about this? Or maybe... Mm-hmm. Another way of thinking about reintegration would be, how do I want to make meaning of my experience? Is it important for me to commit to being a space that people could turn if they have experiences like this? Or do I want to tell my story? Or do I want to, do I want to whatever, you know, fill in the blank? What do I want to do Mm. with what happened to me? Or maybe how do I, how do I heal some of the relationships with people in my life that had to be fractured as a way of getting space from those Mm. communities? And are there people who I need a distance from who I don't need distance from in the same way? But I think that this this question is really about where do I go from here? And what do I do now? And if the past is no longer the thing that is gripping me in the present, what does my future look like? Mm. And those three steps of, of creating safety and processing and reintegration and restoration, those come from the work of Dr. Judith Herman, who, who's been absolutely groundbreaking in her work in the field of complex trauma. So these are not my ideas. Mm-hmm. But what that looks like, right, is, as I'm alluding to, grieve, getting space, feeling feelings, moving our bodies, creating a sense of what we can tolerate and what we can't, learning boundaries, understanding codependence and all the ways that faith communities made us codependent with each mm-hmm. other and with the mm-hmm. church. Um understanding our sexuality, understanding how we are controlled by or avoidant of our sexuality, um, reauthoring our our relationship to you know, cognition and how much we think 
right thinking is the best way to be in the world. Understand and deconstruct the way that race and colonization has impact our understanding mm. of theology and spirituality and, and be in relationship with people where we tell the truth about what's hard. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's as someone who, who still works within a faith community, it, mm-hmm. it strikes me as kind of deeply sad that faith communities have been the places where we haven't been able to tell the truth. It, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that's a sad thing to, yes. to reckon with. Um, yeah. And I think that that impacts in very significant ways individuals with ongoing mental health issues and mm. the individuals that the faith communities have created harm in, right? There's, it's kind of mm. twofold. There's a project I'm a part of called Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. And the idea is how do we equip churches to actually understand in a theologically appropriate way, in a psychologically and a sociologically appropriate way, what mental health is so that churches can be places where people get support and care and can tell the truth. And I think when we know how to talk about suffering and depression and anxiety, when we understand our bodies, that that is a cornerstone of churches doing less damage to the people Mm. who are already in them. Mm. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, I think one of the things you you talk about in your book is is the ways of of kind of reintegrating our relationship with their own bodies, and in particular, in, in in these religious spaces where it's perhaps it's the the ongoing denial of of the body that has been at least a part of the story of of the stress or even the trauma, the burnout, the fatigue. Um, are there are there some ways? Um, or I know there are some ways you you talk about there that we can start to mm-hmm. reform healthier a healthy relationship with their own their own right. bodies. Are you yeah. want to speak to that for a moment? Oh, it's my f- just a moment. I mean, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I think that embodiment or this felt sense that we are a body as opposed to we are a mind that has a body mm-hmm. can really start by attunement. It can start by noticing experiences that we are having as a body and actually paying attention to and honoring them. So it's amazing how many people I I worked with who have come from very disembodied religious contexts where they don't actually really even know that they're hungry. They don't even know that they're tired. Um, They don't even know what pleasure feels like in their body. But there are all of these experiences that they're having day to day where they're kind of automatic. They're doing the things that they're told that they're supposed to do as a functioning adult in society, but to actually pay attention to thirst. And when you're thirsty, go drink something. When you're cold, put a sweater on. When you're tired, put yourself to bed instead of scrolling on your phone or working harder or Mm. whatever it is. Like when you need a hug, when you feel sad asking for a hug, like it doesn't have to be much more complicated than that. I think we can move beyond that at some point when we have the basics down and we can move into bodily expression and thinking about agency and creative creative expression as a body and all the things that come along with that, that feel adventurous and pleasurable and um, yeah, fulfilling. But I think just the basics of noticing, I've been sitting in my chair for a while and my posture doesn't feel good and my back is sore. Like, can I do something about that? Like those experiences of checking in are things that many of us have to relearn at this stage of our life. So maybe there's a sticky note on your desktop, or maybe there's a reminder on your watch or on your phone that goes off that says, have you taken a deep breath? Like, how's your posture? Can you notice how your back is feeling? Like sometimes we need those external reminders to create more internal awareness of our cues. 
the um, one of the things that um, again strikes me in this conversation is is that um, men and women as well within these spaces have been given particular scripts mm-hmm. to to run. Um, and and my guess would be that that creates um, different challenges um, depending on which mm. of those scripts you were given in terms of engaging yeah. in, in some of that work. And I can only speak, obviously, from my own experience as a man being sort of handed these hyper-masculine kind of narratives uh-huh. that never really seemed to fit because I didn't like hunt, like hunting or, or <laughs> rescuing damsels or whatever it was I was supposed to be doing. Um but but I know from 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 my perspective, and I know this would be true for for many um, people given that masculine script within that space, that sort of tuning into those things almost you taught is feels like weakness or like some kind of um, mm-hmm. almost embarrassing to pay attention mm-hmm. to our own. Do, do you know what I'm? Do you do you see that kind of thing coming through, yes. or or those gender yeah. differences as well in terms of how people experience some of this work? Right. Yeah. We could, I mean, it's a much bigger conversation to think Mm -hmm. about the way that gender socialization and um, harmful narratives around emotionality and bodies and sexuality Mm -hmm. are perpetrated in, in certain faith communities. But I think what is so important to recognize that you're articulating here is when we start to challenge how we've internalized those harmful narratives, even if there is a self inside who knows that that's not what we want to believe anymore. Mm. There are usually there are usually still artifacts of our faith communities and that the toxic paradigms that are still right there, and they tend to flare up when we make a difference, when mm. we when we change, when we do something different, when we step outside of the confines of what we were restricted to. All of a sudden, the story is right there saying, "You're bad." you're broken, you're weak, you shouldn't, someone's going to judge you. Mm. And it may be that that's because someone actually would have judged us in the past mm. or yeah. because we learned to judge ourselves as a way of disavowing whatever it is that we're trying to connect to. Mm. So being able to recognize that there are both, right? There's an adult self who's here saying, no, this is safe and it's okay. And that adult self can push back on that younger self and go, I know that you really helped me belong in that community and we're going to do it different now because that mm. doesn't work for us anymore is a really compassionate and gentle way of acknowledging even when we're ready to change, not all parts of us are. And it's okay. That's okay. Yeah. That's so helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps as a, as a, a final reflection or question, um, the, how would you respond, I suppose, to the, to those who feel like they don't know if it's kind of possible to move past this or to, mm. or to find some kind of healthy reintegration on the other side? Yeah. In your experience of working with people and, and journeying through this with people, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you just have a, maybe a, a final comment to make about, yeah. about the possibility of that journey? Yeah. Well, I think that sometimes the hopelessness is not an accurate reflection of where we are in the present day moment, but is a a feeling we felt at many times before when we were stuck in an environment where there was high control and low attunement and Mm. no support. And so it is possible that in the same way we can have these introjects of judgmental voices, we can have these stories that live inside of us that are younger versions of ourselves that don't know that we got out, that we have more resources, that we can think differently. Mm. And so the invitation, I think, with that is to be able to to access the adult self who does know, wow, I, I'm not in that environment anymore, or it's not that way, or there are other people around me, or I have more resources. And I think one of the things that adult selves inside of us often know better than the stuck younger parts of us who feel despairing and stuck in, yeah, 
in our pain is that people, and science shows this over and over and over again, people can change until the moment that they're dead, right? Until we die, our brains have the capacity for neurogenesis, for learning, for adaptation. And there is no single person who is exempt from that. So even though we feel despair and we feel stuck and we feel hopeless, the truth is that there is a a self that is inside of every single one of us who can pick themselves back up, who can start again, who can reach, even though it's scary uh, and who can do something different and who can feel different. Mm. That's, um, that's such a good place to finish. Mm. Uh, Hey, thank you, Hillary. We can, where can people go to find you, find your work? Yeah. So uh, things like speaking events are on my website and usually on Instagram and Twitter as well. Uh, so HillaryLMcBride.com and then on, I think on Instagram, I should know this, Hillary Leanna <laughs> McBride, Twitter Hillary L. McBride. Um, I, I'm not super interested in media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm a bit hard to get a hold of, um, probably on purpose. Yes. And I, I, yeah, I find myself more interested in being with what's right in front of me than, mm. than on my devices. So I try to update things there, but, um, keep, keep checking if you're interested in what I'm, what I'm putting out into the world. It sometimes takes me a little while to get around to it. <laughs> awesome. Oh, well, that, thank you so much for your, for your generous gift of your time today. Mm, um, I'm so really, grateful to be with you. Yeah. It's wonderful. Thank you. Take care. So. That was my wonderful conversation with Hilary McBride. As I said at the beginning, so grateful to Hilary for sharing her time, her expertise, and, and not just her time in this moment, but for the many years of, of research, of work with people, uh, and helping us to understand what's going on inside our own journeys and our own humanness. Thanks as always as well to Reese Michelle for taking this audio and making it sound as good as possible in your ears. Until next time. 